The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to pick up an issue that we have neglected really for the past 6 to 12 months to talk about the Africa-Asia wildlife trade. And to be fair, pretty much everybody has neglected this issue in part because of what's been going on with the pandemic and all of the drama that we've seen over the past six months in terms of the economy, the lockdowns and everything that's going on. Meantime, though, a lot is happening in the wildlife space. And COVID, it's hard to tell if it's been good for the wildlife trade or bad for the wildlife trade. So uh, let me give you a few kind of data points and to set up our conversation today. Uh, back in April, there was an indication that things were not going well. The New York Times reported, and they quoted uh, Nico Jacobs, who was the founder of Rhino 911, uh, and he said that in the first South African lockdown that began on March 23rd, there was a rhino poached every single day. And that's in part because rangers in many of Africa's protected areas are also impacted by COVID, making it easier for the poachers to move undetected. So just as there was a lockdown for everybody else, it also impacted the, the rangers who were there to protect wildlife, and that increased uh, the, the killing. Then, of course, the lockdowns themselves have created economic hardship for millions of people across the continent, and poaching animals is a proven way. I mean, very, very easy way for people to make some extra income. Kobus, you've also talked about that when people are in need of food, that's uh, the hunting increases in those situations as well. Now, the issue is getting those tusks, those horns and those scales from Africa all the way to Asia. And COVID has also disrupted those trade routes. So one theory has it that organized crime syndicates who are behind all of this are simply biding their time and they're just filling their inventories. And once the flights and ships really start to move again, then they'll be back in business again. So there are indications, Cobus, that because of the lack of travel, because of the lack of tourism, that has had a negative and adverse impact on the wildlife trade. But at the same time, because of the increased desperation, people are killing more. It's hard to tell really right now what's going on. What added another kind of layer of complexity to all of this is the fact that um, that pangolin trading was was in uh, you know at certain times kind of blamed for the for possibly transmitting COVID in the first place. So obviously it, it emerged um, in uh, in Wuhan um, in in December, um, and you know wet markets in Wuhan were quickly blamed as as a possible space where um, where the transmission happened. Um, and pangolin trade was particularly kind of blamed for as because pangolins were were seen as a possible kind of vector species that 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 helped to carry and 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 um, facilitate the mutation of the virus. So you know, kind of, so we've seen kind of you know uh, increased controversy kind of around around kind of wildlife trade in China as the COVID crisis intensified around the world. Now, China has taken a number of actions. We've talked about this on a previous podcast in trying to contain the wildlife trade. They've banned live animals in wet markets. They've also elevated the pangolin 
to uh, to a higher level of protection. Now, those are domestic pangolins, to be sure, but they have taken a number of, uh, of actions. Let's get a perspective now of what's going on elsewhere in Asia, including in China. And we're thrilled to have James Compton, who's the Senior Director for Asia Pacific for the Wildlife Conservation Group Traffic. And he joins us uh, also right here in Vietnam. A very good afternoon to you, James. Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, Cobus. Great to be here. It's fantastic to have you again. This is a topic we are not talking about enough, so we're very happy to have you join us to share a little bit of your insights from from traffic as to what's going on. So we talked about there's data points on both sides of this to suggest that there's some encouraging signs, but at the same time, some discouraging signs. Tell us a little bit about where we are in terms of the Africa-Asia illicit wildlife trade and how it's being impacted by COVID. Well, I think, to be fair, we don't know yet. Uh, we're in the middle of this, and this middle could keep stretching on and on until until those uh, transport vectors that you mentioned already actually start bouncing back to, to anything resembling uh, pre-COVID traffic. I hesitate to even use the word normal. Uh, so we are seeing that wildlife trade uh, is being taken with a lot more seriousness, as Cobus just remarked. Um, the, the threat, at least for live animal trade, uh, that was associated with the, the probable genesis of, of the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus with coming from bats and with pangolins as a possible intermediary host that facilitated the jump to humans, that's definitely lifted the attention of health and wildlife uh, officials globally, and I think no better examples than the reactions of China and Vietnam in particular in this region. So what we've seen is that uh, the policy decision that you mentioned that came down in China uh, about banning wildlife uh, for sale in wet markets uh, has been expanded to a, a general crackdown on illegal wildlife trade generally. And some of the, the statistics are quite uh, impressive, large, as to the action that's been, that's been taken. And I think that if we start the conversation with, with China's reaction um, domestically, uh, it's also led to uh, a kind of competition between agencies, between provinces, between the, the city-states like Shanghai, for example, where government agencies are seeking to answer those calls for action that have come right to the, to the very top of the political hierarchy. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit in, in, in general terms about how China is linked to Southeast Asia in relation to wildlife trade. Because, you know, we've, we've seen in the past, in for example, when the, the ivory ban, the, the ban on domestic trade in ivory was announced in, in China, that a lot of people um, uh, predicted that it would shift to Southeast Asia. A lot of people were mentioning Cambodia particularly. Um, and, you know, kind of, and that, that Southeast Asia kind of functions as an alternative kind of marketplace to, to, to kind of smuggle products into China. Like, how, how do those two fit together in relation to wildlife trade? Well, Southeast Asia and, and China have been inextricably linked going back centuries when many of these uh, modern political entities were essentially tribute states into imperial China, Vietnam and Cambodia being prime examples. And you have records going back uh, hundreds of years where things like ivory, rhino horn, uh, agarwood, uh, sea cucumbers, um, 
other, other products that have been used as luxury items, uh, status symbols, medicinal ingredients have been moving into the Chinese market. And in modern times, I guess the driver of that has been uh, simply economic, that the, the price points of demand were often higher than they were in countries like Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, Myanmar, Cambodia. So it's a, it's a link that runs across both animal and plant uh, species and products derived from those. Um, and I think that what you cite as the, the ivory trade policy shift in China, where the domestic ivory trade was essentially uh, outlawed uh, at the end of 2017, has seen a, a market shift. But it, it's not to say that ivory has disappeared from China altogether. It's illegal, but it's still uh, available. So what we've been trying to do from traffic's perspective uh, is look at that, how does that continuing availability of ivory relate to what's available in uh, Southeast Asia, in the neighbouring countries of, of the lower Mekong? And I think that what we've seen is that, yes, uh, the, the availability has reduced, the prices have reduced in, in China itself. Uh, at the same time, the, the movement of tourists and business people and investors into Southeast Asia, into those lower Mekong countries, has sort of created a, a mobile buying public, or at least a very strong perception of that. And the availability of ivory and other products, um, more like the, the, the tourist souvenir type products rather than large items, uh, has been prevalent across those countries. The Chinese tourists uh, were largely the most numerous in terms of arrivals in, in Vietnam, for example, uh, up until last year, although there was a, a bit of a dip uh, with some political tensions about five years back. Laos, you've seen, has become a, a huge investment uh, location for Chinese business, for infrastructure development, the, the Kunming to, to uh, Bangkok railways being built through Laos. There's a lot of um, Chinese citizens that are there working on projects like that. In Myanmar, you have a, a rather porous border in a number of places where the central government of Myanmar doesn't control uh, those areas that abut China. And in Cambodia, there's been a wholesale uh, investment in, in building of towns like, uh, like Sihanoukville, which has gone through a boom and bust. And we've seen that ivory as one of the wildlife products that have accompanied this movement or mass movement of potential buyers. And we've seen also that some of the, the manufacturing and the way that uh, stocks perhaps have been being stockpiled uh, in those countries on the anticipation that buyers will come from China and possibly elsewhere um, on their travels. And as we talked about at the top in terms of the Chinese new regulations that have come into effect, uh, just to be very clear, this is about live animal trade in the wet markets as opposed to wildlife products. And that then brings us into where rhino horn, pangolin scales, obviously ivories you talked about. Uh, here in Southeast Asia, uh, 2019 was a banner year for uh, pangolin trade. Uh, l last year, the Singapore government reports that they uh, seized 12.9 tons of pangolin scales. 
And when you think about how big a pangolin is, I mean, it's not that big. 13 tons of scales is just an unimaginable quantity of animals that suffered in order to make, the, to make that happen. So when we look at where the killing is happening in terms of the, the pangolins, rhino horn, as we talked about in South Africa and other places, when traffic looks out at, at the landscape right now, what is the animal or species that is most concerning to you in terms of this trade? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that seizure in Singapore. I mean, that was a single seizure. Um, the, the next day, there was 12,700 kilos. Uh, sorry, the next week, there was 12,700 kilos of pangolin scales also seized in Singapore. Um, and later in 2019, there was a, a, a massive seizure in China of 23 tonnes of pangolin scales in October of, of 2019. In, uh, in Wenzhou that came via Shanghai as well as Korea on a very circuitous route to get there. So the, the pangolin scales uh, certainly exemplify the, the large-scale trafficking, which from the perspective of, of traffic as an organisation that looks at how this significance uh, relates to organised crime, we, we uh, believe that this is not opportunistic in a scale, at a scale like that. So there's some very uh, well-embedded syndicates to, uh, as you mentioned, actually hunt and process the amount of animals that it would take to uh, compile multi-tonnage uh, cargoes and then to move that predominantly from Africa uh, because the Asian populations have simply declined so far that um, amounts of that sort of magnitude are likely to be nigh on impossible to gather from Asian pangolin species in, in this, uh, the 2020s decade. So, yeah, pangolins are very important, but the, you know, we could talk about wildlife trade in total. I mean, the, not to forget there is a huge legal wildlife trade um, and there are a number of connections that uh, are very important for the natural resource base of these growing economies in Asia. When we think of timber in particular, um, for building materials and for luxury furniture that comes out of Africa and into Southeast Asia and into China, uh, we've been doing quite a lot of work on the, the, the significance and scale of the rosewood market in China uh, as it pertains to how the CITES listings that came in in, in 2017 to, to regulate a lot of Dalbergia species. Um, just, be, just before we go on, sorry to interrupt you, could you just explain what CITES is and why it's important? Uh, yeah, sure. So a, a lot of the, the wildlife trade can be defined in international terms as either legal or illegal, depending on how the species is listed under the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. A mouthful, but it's the, the best uh, instrument that we've got in terms of both defining the rule book about how things can or cannot be traded internationally, how they should be managed in terms of the sustainability of that trade, and if the trade is not permitted, it means that if the countries have put in place as parties to the convention national legislation, they should be able to control the import and export 
of those listed species in order to either prevent it from happening uh, if it's illegal or to manage it correctly so that it can be uh, performed in a, in a legal and sustainable manner. So it's a really important consideration with how we talk about wildlife trade uh, because it does, in its legal form, provide a whole lot of incentives to uh, local and national economies and to the management of some species so that the populations can be uh, managed within sustainable, sustainable limits but allow that offtake for commercial benefit. You know, kind of shifting a little bit to, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll return to it from from the the trafficking networks to um, to the consumption of the, of these products, and I'm particularly uh, thinking of of pangolin scales in in this case. Um, you know, tests have shown that pangolin scales are mostly made of keratin, so it's essentially the same material as human hair and nails. Um, and that it has very little kind of therapeutic benefit. But of course, as, as we've seen over the last while, it's very difficult to to combat kind of disinformation by, by telling people that what they believe is wrong. And it's certainly very difficult when it comes to medical issues. Um, you know, it's like when, when people when people are in the market to buy medicine, then they, they you know, frequently not particularly in the market to listen to why that medicine is, is not helpful. Um, so how does, how does traffic target consumption particularly in relation to pangolin scales? Well, I think we, we have been looking at the consumption end uh, as a very important entry point for the multi-track, if you like, approach that we think needs to be taken to deal with uh, illegal and unsustainable wildlife trade. So looking at both the, uh, the policy and regulatory environment and how that is enforced uh, so that you can create uh, an environment from which people have a clear reference point about what's legal, what's not, and what is the, the social norms of accepted behaviour. And to complement that, we've been looking at uh, more, uh, well, still very much an evidence-based approach, but looking at behavioural change approaches to drive those so-called die-hard users of particular products uh, away from continuing to, to buy, use and consume various products, whether it's luxury goods, medicinal or, or, or food, for example. So we, we see that as an essential part of the toolbox. With respect to pangolins in particular, um, I think one thing is really important to remember is that pangolin scales by themselves may not be uh, the total prescription of whatever formulation is being uh, consumed by the ultimate end user. And uh, a systems approach is probably equally important than an individual species-based approach when you're talking about traditional medicine. So. Traditional Chinese medicine is, uh, you know, echoed by uh, some of the the other Asian medicine systems. The the Vietnamese medical system uh, has a lot of Chinese reference points in it, and more than 80%, sometimes up to 85% of ingredients that are used are actually plants. So the medicinal plants 
uh, element of these systems can't be ignored. And we've actually seen an interesting link to some of the uh, changes that have happened in the, the current COVID environment that we could perhaps come back to later as it applies to plants. But looking at the systems, it's really about how do we work with the practitioners of formal traditional medicine, the uh, hospitals that they work in, the dispensaries that they use to uh, put together the prescriptions, and then there's also a kind of industry element, which is where uh, patent formulations are made by uh, commercial entities in the form of pills, powders and, and other uh, concoctions that are pre-combined for uh, the end user. So looking at that system overall, how do we deal with something like uh, pangolins as an ingredient and particularly the scales that you're talking about which uh, uh, are, are made from keratin? So we, we try to take a, a couple of steps back and look at, OK, well, if we're going to help solve this problem, it's really about looking at the law, looking about at, at the supply, uh, because now the supply is essentially either stopped or whatever stockpiles are held are finite, and therefore it's almost like a, a gradual decline of any legal supply in a country like China where there has been a stockpile accumulated over a, a lot of time. So there's work we need to do with the medicinal hierarchy, with the policy makers, with the enforcers, and of course with the consumers, with some of those behavioural uh, approaches that I mentioned uh, a bit earlier. Support for this podcast comes from the African Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. It's interesting you talked about policymakers and law, and, and that really comes up to the governance question. So if we're going to have the systemic approach, as you talked about, rather than go product by product or animal by animal, whatnot, uh, to look at it in a more systemic way, it brings up the question of whether these laws are actually enforced especially in here in Southeast Asia, where there are varying levels of governance. China, for its part, has done quite a good job when it comes to the ivory ban. It said it was going to ban the ivory. The stores shut down. The trade probably, to some extent, went in the underground and the black market. But for the most part, it's very difficult, if not possible, to get ivory just off the street as it was five years ago. Here in Vietnam, in Laos, in, in Myanmar, in Cambodia, very different story. When you talk with the policymakers who are consuming your research and you're talking to them about this idea of a systemic approach, what's their reaction? How do they, how do they respond to this? I think they respond quite territorially, Eric, uh, depending on which ministry you're talking about. I think the greatest challenge is to be able to get, uh, may not be a whole of government approach, that seems to be um, the, the buzzword at the moment in dealing with COVID because it cuts across so many different ministries. But if we're talking about the laws that apply to the governance of wildlife trade, sometimes the areas of jurisdiction and responsibility cut across a number of different ministries and departments. And I think where we, as uh, an organisation, focused on making the wildlife trade... Uh, 
more, le- more sustainable and ensuring that it's legal. Where we see an opportunity is in these directives that have come from the top leaders, whether it's in China or also here in Vietnam where um, the, the Prime Minister's directive and the, the follow-up that came out in, in, uh, in July really went into some specificity about what needs to be done to change the status quo. And the interesting thing about the, the Vietnamese directive, that number 29 that came out in July, was that it specified that the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development should do various things to, to look at captive bred wildlife, the Ministry of Public Security, looking at transnational organised crime, the Ministry of Defence, strengthening customs and border control. And it went through a whole uh, number of things, including state-run media, including the state supreme people's procuracy, which refers to the, the, the legal system and the courts, and then down to city and provincial level people's committees. So to me, that was a, a very rare insight into, OK, if you have a problem that's big enough, the system, particularly in these uh, centrally controlled political economies, can be mobilised. And maybe we have the opportunity uh, to make a great dent in the illegal and unsustainable and the now unfit for human consumption component of wildlife trade uh, so that the overall environment is improved. And I think that that's where, you know, political will, if it comes from that level, if it is uh, targeted towards particular jurisdictions who have the responsibility to respond, then we have a chance of existing laws being enforced for both compliance as well as for penalties meted out uh, to the full extent of the law. And I think that's where you start to see a shift in people's behaviour, whether they are government regulators right down to end consumers and the whole supply chain in between. Is there a role, is, is China playing a kind of a norm leader role in, in kickstarting some of these developments? For example, I was wondering whether, like what, what the kind of policy reaction was in Southeast Asia to these bans, the ivory ban and then the wildlife trade ban in, in, in China? And whether, is there a, a situation where that kind of policy shift in China would then have kind of knock-on effects in the rest of that region? Well, I think that you could, you could say when, when Thailand changed its law uh, to cover African elephant ivory back in 2015 and the implementation after that, the the importance of Thailand as a retail market for ivory shrank dramatically. And yes, you can still buy a very um, stringently controlled uh, selection of products derived from registered domestic elephants in Thailand. But essentially, the, the commercial ivory trade is outlawed now. In other countries of the southeast, of the lower Mekong, yes, there uh, is... Uh, some effort that's been needed to improve their legislative coverage. But ivory trade has not been permitted in a domestic sense 
for some time. And I think that it's really about enforcing the laws that are already in place. And we've seen, you know, the, the Prime Minister's instructions that came out in, in, in Laos uh, in 2018 or 2019, I, I forget the date now, but that also was about looking at, okay, how do we incentivize the regulatory authorities to enforce the, the laws that actually exist? And I think that uh, China may have made a big statement in banning its domestic ivory trade, but in some ways it was catching up uh, to some of its neighbours. And I, I believe that it's really about the implementation and enforcement of existing laws where we see the greatest gap. China has a leadership role, to be sure, and I think that the way that China interacts with ASEAN uh, is quite interesting. You know, there is uh, an ASEAN-China dialogue, there's an ASEAN plus three dialogue, which includes China, uh, Republic of Korea and Japan. But the way that China interacts with um, its ASEAN neighbours is often on a one-to-one -one basis. So I think that the good policies in China and the interest that we see currently from uh, agencies involved in wildlife management, in uh, the Customs Administration and investigations of anti-smuggling are starting to catalyse opportunities for bilateral and multilateral cooperation um, on the illegal side of wildlife trade. And I think that the seizures that Eric mentioned earlier to do with, uh, with pangolin scales in Singapore there was a distinct level of cooperation between China and Singapore in the generation of intelligence that led to, to those seizures taking place. So I think that that's a really good indication of the potential of intergovernmental collaboration to, to target some of the problem areas of wildlife trafficking. So let's close our discussion just again where we started the talk in terms of whether or not COVID is good or bad for the wildlife trade. And again, you mentioned that it's too early to tell, but let's let's try and put a, you know, get the, 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 the crystal ball out. Let's assume that everybody is kind of stuck in place through 2021 until the vaccines are widely distributed. That's the, the best, most optimistic estimates. If, if that's in fact the case, what is the planning and the thinking inside traffic in terms of how COVID will impact the trade for the next year and a half? I think if we're to imagine the scenarios that might play out 18 months from now, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the traffickers and think how they might operate. Since the COVID pandemic broke at the beginning of 2020, the only transport vectors that have operated consistently are maritime shipping and air cargo. Air passenger traffic, particularly international flights, have dropped to almost zero except for repatriation flights. But not to forget that people get desperate. I'm reminded of the seizure of 29 kilograms of rhino horn in the southern Vietnamese airport of Can which took place at the beginning of March, just as the Vietnamese government was shutting down all flights from South Korea. So traffickers are always looking for opportunities. And I think that the response from the airline industry to add the risk of zoonotic transfer to their already stringent regulations has been 
noticeable and through things like the routes partnership that traffic is a, a member of together with IATA and Airports Council International and a number of airlines uh, I think that uh, we're seeing an increased attention to this risk but if we're talking about large scale seizures large scale cargoes that can only be transported by ship we have to look at what can be done in the maritime sector uh, last year traffic worked with uh, WWF and a number of partners to convene workshops in two key ports in East Africa firstly in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and secondly in Mombasa in Kenya and this was looking at the Africa to Asia routing that has been prevalent in a lot of high-profile wildlife trafficking and trying to see what the various actors could do if they were working together to increase the surveillance and ability to detect illicit wildlife cargoes. Well, that's an optimistic way to end our discussion, that there is at least some hope. James Compton is the Senior Director for Asia Pacific for the Wildlife Conservation Group Traffic, and he joins us here from Vietnam. Uh, James, thanks so much for taking the time. If people want to get involved with traffic, if they want to follow the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you guys? Uh, through our website, Eric, uh, that's uh, the www and then traffic.org, traffic.org. Great. Well, we will put a link to that on in the show notes. And uh, once again, James, appreciate your time and all your insights. Thanks so much. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Cobus. Cobus, I really appreciate the optimism at the end that James brought to the discussion in terms of the, the motivation that a lot of governments in this part of the world have in terms of cracking down on the wildlife trade, because they know full well here in Southeast Asia, bad things come from the live animal trade. Bad things come from the wildlife trade in products as well. We have a, a pandemic on our hands that came from animals, and I think there's a different motivation today than there was, say, two years ago. That being said, there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about the governance question here in Southeast Asia, especially among low-income countries where they don't have the capacity. He talked about the rivalries in ministries that make it difficult to enact these new enforcement measures. And meantime, the killing in Africa continues apace. And as you pointed out many, many times, there are so many kind of cross-section of things going on here in terms of economic need that's then driving uh, the, the, the need to kill in order to just feed your family to earn some extra money. And at the same time, the syndicates are probably, as best as we can tell, stockpiling uh, in, so when the day comes that the planes and the, the tourists are back, they can start selling those products again. So it is very, very hard for us to tell where we are in this moment, as we've talked about so many times on this show where we're trying to figure out what life is like in the post-COVID-19 era. We can't actually do that because we've got this cloud of fog that's just descended on us and we can't see you know, one meter, three feet ahead of us. It's just impossible. It's like driving on a windy road. So let's hope that what James said is right and that work is being done right now to improve the governance, to do the crackdowns, and at the same time, hopefully in Africa, in places like South Africa where the rhino killings are continuing apace, they can get the rangers back out there and more money will be there to be supported. I'm concerned a little bit, and I'd like your take on this, is that the economic downturns that are so severe right now in Kenya and in South Africa are no doubt going to have an impact on wildlife conservation and protection. So a lot of factors to consider here. 
Yeah, I, I share that worry. Um, and at the same time, one has to, one has to, you know, kind of point out that, of course, you know, COVID is the cause. If, if it turns out that that wet markets were actually the where where it was transmitted, um, COVID is probably the you know the direct result of ecosystem disruption. Um, and the the cure for COVID might well be in some little plant somewhere that's you know in a part of the Amazon that's kind of being burnt at the moment. Um, so there, there's value to ecosystems. In, to intact ecosystems, you know, and that value potentially is much, much higher than the individual trees or animals within that ecosystem. It, it's potentially much more valuable to have an ecosystem that works as a whole, because it, it might be delivering untold kind of solutions to, to future and current problems. Um, and you, we're not even talking about the climate change impact of that as well. So there has to be a way to value ecosystems as a whole, rather than to break them up into their, their parts and sell those off. Um, and I think so, so there's, a, there's a real conceptual challenge here beyond the kind of logistical challenge and dealing with policy and and the mafia and so on. You know, kind of there's, there's a kind of a challenge for the entire population of a country to think of those ecosystems as wealth, kind of, and, and wealth that keeps growing themselves, you know, um, and particularly, I think the, the real challenge is to try and kind of have buy-in, you know, to, where, where people actually benefit from those systems being, being preserved rather than breaking them up. And I think that's really where the challenge lies. Now, most of our conversation today focused on the traditional wildlife trade, rhinos, elephants, pangolins, and things like that. We didn't talk about donkey skins and fishing, which are other parts of this that are very, very important and also have an enormous impact on sustainability, uh, both in Africa and also here in Asia as well, because the donkey trade is not something unique to uh, to Africa. We're going to have shows on both of those issues coming up in the next few weeks. We've got some very exciting guests to talk about China's distant fishing fleet and the impact that it's having on coastal communities in West Africa. So we're going to kind of expand on the wildlife and the, and the animal trade, if you will, between Africa and Asia. So... That'll do it for this edition of the show. This is a topic that we cover every day. I mean, I literally try to include at least one conservation sustainability wildlife story in our daily email newsletter because it is so important. And we're trying very, very hard to make sure that these topics don't get pushed aside amidst all of the other disruptions that are dominating the headlines, whether it's the U.S.-China standoff, uh, Chinese engagement in the Middle East, COVID-19, and of course, the economic downturn and the debt crisis that's going on. We believe firmly that these issues have to be discussed. They are very, very important to not only the China-Africa relationship, but daily life in Africa and as well in here in Asia. So if you'd like to find out more about what we're doing on our newsletter, go over to our website, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, get it for $3 for three months. Try it out. See if you like it. Uh, we'd love for you to become part of our global community of readers. Uh, we're very excited about how quickly it's growing and how people are talking about it and sharing the story. So thank you to all of our current subscribers. And for those of you who haven't yet signed up, we hope that you'll do so uh, today. ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. For Cobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another show. Until then, thanks so much. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.